This week, the epitome of freedom, telling stories that honor your ancestors, and above all, doing it with the love. I'm talking to producer extraordinaire T.K. Dutess this week, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had the pleasure of talking to Keisha T.K. Dutess about her role in the Weeksville Project. Now, if you haven't heard that, skip back an episode and get it in your ears. We dropped it on Juneteenth without even meaning to, a feat so astounding I am forced to mention it myself, in the words of Ricky Jay. Now, TK has a storied career in radio and podcasting, and has made a name for herself by how far she's willing to go to help her community. You'll hear us talking about neighborhoods, history, liberation, Beyonce, and so much more. Take a listen. Keisha Dutess, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) To start with, tell me about the part of Brooklyn that you're from. Okay. Like how how is how has time shaped it? Who are the groups that have moved in and out of it? And what makes wow. it what makes it feel like home to you? Because you're do you live in Flatbush, right? You're living like Jamaican Flatbush? Oh Caribbean Flatbush, yeah. You Caribbean go, Flatbush, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, you almost had it. Um <laughs> that was good. Well, so that was where the original studio that uh we work out of, Bonfire Radio, was founded. Um like we literally like not a whole bunch of people call it that. Like we made that up. So, like, I don't want anybody to listen and be like, oh, yeah, Korean Flatbush. And then people will look at them crazy. Like, literally, we, like, made that up inside of ourselves. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) But it was it's the part of Flatbush where the most concentrated amount of Caribbean people live. So, yeah, Jamaican, Trinidadian, Haitian, the um, West Indian Day Parade starts there and then it ends um, at Eastern Parkway, like which is a big parkway in Brooklyn. Oh, what's that called that starts with a J? What's the – I should know this. I mean, I shouldn't know this. I don't live in New York, but <laughs> I had a coworker that used to live in that part of Brooklyn. Oh, Juve, the the event. Oh, yes, yes. So that's – um yeah, so the, the parade covers all the West Indian nations, and Juve is like the night before, and that's more of like a – Trinidad and Tobago thing in terms of what what Juve means and how they celebrate it and what what it's mirroring because they have like um, costumes and stuff like the night before costumes and those are like they mirror the Trinidad and Tobago um, Juve yeah cool but everybody participates so it's cool it's, it it was cool I'm sorry but you you were saying the the bonfire group kind of gave that yeah, name to that's yeah. not like a quote unquote official name although i was just reading this thing in city lab about you know corporate real estate interests coming in and slapping new names on stuff right cuz i live in dc and amazon wanted to call that area around crystal city national landing they wanted to rebrand it as national landing and nobody likes it oh yeah so i i actually view your naming that region as Caribbean Flatbush to be far more legitimate than anything that you might see in terms of like a real estate rebranding. Yeah. I mean, because it's like the realest, it's literally a real depiction of what it is. When the real estate people rebrand, then you know from your DC experience and probably a million other places, right? Like they are trying to slap a name on it that takes it further away from the truth than it really is so that it could paint a picture 
to people and make it more attractive to outsider sensibilities. If I say Caribbean Flatbush, you know exactly what you're getting, you know? And maybe that's not attractive to people that are not from New York and they don't know what that is. But I say Caribbean and a neighborhood name, I think you should know, like, it's going to be a lot of Caribbean stuff and people. <laughs> so, okay, so three mornings a week, you host a show with your partner, Conscious, called TK in the AM, 90-minute music and talk show, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, how, how did the two of you meet? How'd you start working together? Oh, my. <laughs> like, take me, take me all the way back. Take you all the way back. All right. So... We're creative partners, and we met about mm, 10 years ago, give or take, and he had a show, a live event called A Monthly Bonfire, so that's where we came with the name Bonfire Radio. It's an extension of that, and that show was like a, it was a firstly like an open mic, or we called it a mic open um, at the beginning, and people would come, and they would sign up, and they would wait online and wait for us to open, and then we called names by lottery. So that was the first part. And then the second part, we have a featured artist and it could be any genre. And people enjoyed that because, you know, you think you're coming to a hip hop show because of what the demographic looks like and what we look like. But it would be anyone, literally um, people from um, doing folk music, R&B or just one featured poet, just a, just doing spoken word. Um, the features were really like the, the, the mic open got people to come because the people are narcissistic they want to perform but <laughs> you know expo they would stay for the culture right the rest of it and then also there was like a f familial thing people came back every month um so he was looking for a co-host and um you know kind of a person to feminine energy for the stage because it was very you know you know like lots <laughs> of the the youngsters you know they want to rap and stuff it's very male it was very male centric. Conscious is back there coughing. Um, <laughs> hey, Conscious. Uh, Dave says hey. hey Dave. <laughs> he says hey. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very male centric at first, and then you know, with a lot of work and like a lot of effort, like he was able to hit up the right people and cultivate a fifty fifty space where. We didn't censor people, but we didn't tolerate too much crazy language. And also knowing that everybody has to reach their coming of age on their own. So, like, if you came up and said wild stuff, like, as long as it wasn't too wild where we would have to put you out, like, you can have a space to, you know, go off. So we just, like, cultivated this family every month. And he invited me to host. My my test drive was he wanted me to host the all-women's showcase because um every month had a theme. And he would not even host it. He was like, I'm a, I'm a guy. I'm just going to do the behind the scenes this month. I'm going to, here's the keys to my car. Don't fuck it up. And, <laughs> and I hosted it. And I think I did a good job because then he asked me back. And then I came back and I came back. And then we would start bantering on stage more. And people were getting like this vibe like, oh, wow, they are good hosts because they're good at talking to each other on stage it's it's true it's like he asked you he's like you can borrow my car this one time but then he discovered that you were a stunt driver <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes and then we started stunt driving together <laughs> uh-huh 
So yeah, so yeah, that's how we met, and then we just kept on working on stuff, working on stuff, and it was time for that show to that event to end, and it ended, and it was just like go out on top. The New York Times had wrote a, a blog about us, um, you know, and other people were they saw that like we had a spot in New York City independent hip hop like legacy, you know, like Homeboy Sandman was on our stage now he's signed to stone's throw records we have another artist that's like right now people are talking about him like oh is he the next kendrick lamar and he was on our stage and he had a whole other name and now he's like he's making money like we had a good like sense of um up-and-coming talent and they were often on our stage before they were other places so at some point we're gonna look up and it's gonna be like a kanye west and we'll know we'll be like oh we knew him when or we knew her when you know I think a lot of people will say that about you as well. Like, what, this is kind of going to come up later in the interview. You'll see. Um, so my question is for you. Had, had, had you ever done fiction with Conscious before, uh, before Weeksville? No. Like, oh, yes. in the Bondfire stuff? Like, tell me about, was he involved with the Du Bois project at all? Yes. Did, you, did he do Comet stuff? Okay. So talk me, talk me through some of that. Sure. So with Bonfire Radio, most anything that was dreamt up, um, was me like having a big idea and then like him saying, okay, wait a minute. Like he, we checks him. He's my checks and balances a lot of times. He'll be like, okay, wait, 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 wait. That's a lot. Like he would never stifle me. So he would just be real gentle. Like, okay, wait, wait, wait. How can we do it so we can actually do it? <laughs> and so like he was any, any programming that we've had on Bonfire Radio, any, you know, shows that we helped to cultivate, I would be like, I have a big idea. And he'd be like, okay, awesome. Wait a minute. How are we going to do it so that it actually does? It's not too big an idea, you know? So we did the Comet. Uh, a couple years ago, which is W.E.B. Du Bois. And that was just built out of my frustrations because, um, like I said, we love a good theme and I wanted to play something for Black History Month and I couldn't find anything that was either free or... um, you know, good. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, it's hard to it's hard to get them both, right? Like the good stuff, you can't play on streaming because you got to pay the license, and then the free stuff is just not that good. Um, and I was like, well, if this lives on the internet like this, the free stuff, I was like, we can't. You know, we could do we could do bad all by ourselves. So let's give it a try. Sure. And the comet's from 1920, so it's it's in the public domain now, right? Exactly. It passed right under the radar at the time. Um, it was it's in from 1923, so it passed right under the radar of the what I think 97 or 93 year threshold. So um, I was like, well, and I'd had no concept of script, you know. So like how folks say one page, one minute. Um, I had no concept of that yet. I just was like, oh, look at this PDF I found online and the year is right. And of course, we all respect W.E.B. Du Bois. And this is for Black History Month. This is perfect. It's got an Afrofuturist lean. We love that. And it was later I found out it was 36 pages because I was like just reading a PDF. So to me, I was like, oh, it's cool. Short story. No big deal. Easy. And then when we started producing it and I learned like, oh, snap, one page, one minute. (laughs) I was like, well, (laughs) we already out here. So, you know, like that, I think that made me more fearless. This is going to be a little involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, so he's been involved in in all of the things that we've produced at Bonfire Radio. I mean, we've even flown under the radar, you know, just as an internet 
radio station. Um, and we did play some stuff that it was just like there on the Internet and nobody um, kindred by Octavia Butler was was done by um, Lynn Whitfield and a bunch of other amazing actors. And we found it online and nobody else was doing anything with it. And we were just like, we could. Why are we leaving this like on the end? Like, let's just play it and see what happens. And we. We played it live and we build it as like a discussion after. So we had some Afrofuturist authors come on to talk about it. And then we had people in the chat room. So that was we were we were already producing programming and maybe it wasn't our own or it was for other people. But we that the comment was our first time embarking on like a semi original production, you know. The first time I ever heard about Weeksville at all was when I heard about this audio drama. Um, and you said in an interview with Allison Stewart on WNYC that you learned about it through the Brooklyn Movement Center, an organizing group in Bed-Stuy and Crown yeah. Heights. Can you tell me about about that experience and about learning about that for the first time? Because you're a Brooklyn native, right? Yeah. I mean, so I I kind of knew it was there, but when I was I was producing at the Brooklyn Movement Center, their podcast, Third Rail, um, it had come up so many times because it was like, just not too far. It was like half a mile away. And I had, I had hosted a wedding there and it was beautiful to see, um, this, to be part of this wedding that was being hosted, um, there because a, they had never done weddings at Weeksville before because the grounds are beautiful, but, um, I guess they hadn't figured out what they were going to do. And it was, um, the wedding of two black women. So it was like the definition for me, the inspiration behind it and like the definition of freedom and free living as black people right like there's this there's this land that free black people lived on that they cultivated and had businesses and schools like to me even at the time where they were the least free as people they were living their freest lives in Weeksville and then to be a part of this wedding where two black women were being free to marry each other and love each other and party with family. And also they took their wedding photos inside of the historic homes um, that they have on the site. And it was just so beautiful. And I, I was like, yo, this is freedom. Like, this, I, like I, I think that it was marinating in my head. I didn't know we were going to do Weeksville yet, but I, I, it, I, it kept coming up in my life. And I was like, yo, that is the epitome of freedom. What's happening right now is the epitome of freedom. You know, so I think I just kept on running with it and it showed up in my work, you know, at Brooklyn Movement Center. Then um, it just kept showing up, just kept showing up. And and then you met Rob, yeah. right? Uh, I knew Rob from the Brooklyn, you know, the <laughs> people, everybody knows each other sort of out here. So we should say Rob Rob Fields is the executive director of uh, the Weeksville yes. Heritage Center? Yeah, Weeksville Heritage Center. So I had known him just in the community for a while. So when it was time to do the thing, it wasn't hard to call on him. And he also was a guest on that Brooklyn Movement Center show, which helped kind of re- Mind him, hey, you know, hi. <laughs> um, but but also again, still had not planned anything with Weeksville by the time I met I re-met him at Brooklyn Movement Center. It was just a, a a reoccurring theme, recurring theme. And I was just like, you know what? Uh, we gotta do something. We gotta do something. 
So that was what made you decide, the fact that Weeksville was kind of haunting you, yes. basically like a benign haunting? It is was. Is that what made you say, this is, this is the story that we want to tell? Yes, it was. Yeah. It just kept coming back. And I was like, also, just like, whoa, you know, New York is big and has a lot of history, and this is not something you hear about often. So why not? And and in our research, it, the the research was... It was intense, and and it was a few few um books, you know, few and far between. So okay, so the story of the Weeksville project tracks this one family across three generations. It's not just about the Harrisons, right? But about yeah. Weeksville itself, of a of a place that was once for a specific community of freedmen, uh, that Rob Fields described as like an out of the way pocket of Brooklyn, not not quite yet New York when the story begins. Yeah. Um. Can can you? Can you tell me about the research that went into making the show? Because it feels to me like the place of Weeksville is as much of a character as the Harrisons are. Definitely, like on purpose. Like the whole point, I feel like before the families came along, the whole point was to showcase the area. Um, Weeksville was like always the sixth character. So we, we went to Brooklyn Public Library, New York Historical Society. We watch well I watched uh, documentaries about New York City and you know there's always like a little sliver where they talk about black people in New York and and the little sliver would be what I would start writing down notes for and and even even the other parts because you have to like paint the picture of New York right or what's gonna become New York so what was happening around Weeksville that would eventually affect Weeksville like the Brooklyn Bridge being built um all those, all the things that we know now, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, like all these things that kind of also helped to bring the first gentrification of black people, na- na- black people's neighborhoods. Um, this was the f- the coming of the first gentrification, right? Because the bridge came, and with the bridge came easier commerce and easier. Uh, travel and people would start coming to live in Brooklyn, actually start coming to live in the boroughs um, and stuff like that. So and pushing and pushing black people out by the end of Weeksville, um, the schools were pretty much they were almost fully integrated, you know, so it's no longer a like black only society. And and they never tried to like say you can't move here they were just like oh we just happen to all be living in this town and everybody knows it's the black town but we're also not going to stop you from living here either so um a lot of jewish people came uh, a lot of you know russian a lot of irish um stuff like that so they never stopped white people from coming or had any movements because it was like this is this land is your land this land is my land but i recognize it as the first type of gentrification is different than the one we have now but still it ended up with black people being pushed out of the place that they were called home um so we, a lot of that stuff got researched at the libraries and sitting together and then our amazing researcher uh dr aisha terman uh she just got her doctor title and i'm and we're so proud of her and she's like basically if anything black in New York, it's like she's a magician. 
And she would just call up facts like, you know, this person lived here. This is where what they were doing. Let's look at that book. Here's this book. And she's she's a teacher. I mean, she's an educator. She this is what she does. So she was also also helping us on the comet. And I knew who to call for Weeksville. So she was like the lead on that. Like I would say a scenario and I would I'd be like, was this a thing that would have been possible? And she'd be like, yes or no. And then she would point us to different people that we would have to look up. So some of the characters, even though, you know, not like these are short, short stories, but we tried to imbue them with as much real life um, sentiment as possible. So some of the characters are actually based on people, you know, preachers or stuff like that. Yeah, that's 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 my question. Was Cumberland Harrison a real person or are they, is he kind of like a, an amalgam of a bunch of real people? Um, he and his descendants are all. So the, the family, they're purely fictional. We, we placed them, we, but, but they were fictional and inspired just by the types of people you find in the community. But people like um, Paulette in story two, the cousin, um, she was based on Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who was an abolitionist, a, a suffragist, a teacher, a public speaker, right? So you'll hear her allude to her public speaking and why she's in town. And she kind of places us in a time where women were starting to fight for their rights and, you know, to vote and to have a voice in the community. And this was also very intentional because I wanted to point out that there were black suffragists too and and black women speaking at on a high level on behalf of the community um, and just her being a woman, stuff like that. Um, I don't remember the older lady that we named... Um, Aunt Miriam after that we like, but, but she was like, not to say like she, she wasn't a like historical person per se, but there were stories of older women that would hold up the community and give people a place to live. And we kind of modeled her after those older women, you know, and stuff like that. And we tried to put some like different Easter eggs in there for people that are like black history nerds um, to kind of, I don't know if anybody's caught them yet, but they haven't told me. But yeah, so we tried to do little things like that to place people um, as much as possible. What What was your goal in creating the Weeksville Project? Like, what did you want people to know? Because I feel like by creating this podcast, you're cementing this place in cultural memory, right? You're creating an artifact that enables people to listen and learn and remember. Yeah. Man. Ooh. I just kept seeing this place that every time I said the name, people were like, what? I can't believe it. Really? And so it made me kind of hurt my heart, right? Like, here I am, you know, all of us doing all this research and this thing in our own backyards and they don't know about it. So eventually it started to become a mission like, well, if they don't know now, they will know, you know? So eventually it became a mission of just awareness. But I think we started it. We wanted to like our thing, even with the comet, was to give like ancestors like voices. We don't know what they would sound like, would have sounded like. There's no tape for that, you know. We speculate on how they would have sound based on the research, you know, and then what they would sound like thirty years later, and then fifty years later, right? So we just wanted to like see if we could do a good job of bringing people to life. That was the original um, mission for me. 
and bringing them to life, especially with the live performance on the grounds of Weeksville, to me was like super spiritually powerful. You know? Yeah. I, I had written down the question, does the spirit of that place still exist for you in Crown Heights? But I think you answered that by telling yeah. me about that wedding. Yeah, definitely. You know, not only not not only the live performance, but of watching a union of two black women yeah. in that space. And and even just the rediscovery of it and how it, Weeksville was rediscovered by the people to become a historical site. Cause um it was lying dormant underneath trash and rubble until like the nineteen sixties. So from its demise in the like thirties to the sixties, like that's 30 plus years of just, you know, it just was not, there was nothing. It was trash. It was a, a barren lot. And then um, somebody flew over uh, the grounds and was like, you know, somebody interested in history flew over the grounds and was like, that's that's where these black people lived. And they mobilized the community. So there's photos of like, you can go on YouTube and you can see them talk about it and stuff of the Boy Scouts um, in the community digging up artifacts and f- finding cups and stuff. And, and then how they got those houses. There was three houses right now that's standing that you could walk through and how they got those to be a landmark. So the spirit of Weeksville never died. Um, it was dormant. And then. It got revived by the people, especially Joan Maynard. She's the woman responsible for organizing and making the Weeksville Heritage Center a thing. And then I guess 20 years after the they found it, they made the Weeksville Heritage Society like a place that you could go, even though it wasn't even like as built up and beautiful as it is now if you if you guys come to Brooklyn to visit it. Yeah. I'm still I'm still caught up in the idea of like all these little 1960s Boy Scouts with their little ascots, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting like their parents sewing on little city archaeology merit badges. Yeah, I <laughs> I couldn't believe I was I like imagine. I didn't even realize we had Boy Scouts. You know, like <laughs> that's not a to me that doesn't that's not a city thing, but that but that is a time and place thing. And it's amazing, like little kids helping to unearth. Like, I think one of the greatest things about Brooklyn, New York. I feel like throughout your career, and I'm not saying that this has stopped, but I'm, I'm saying that, you know, looking over the, the scope of your career thus far, you've been very community-minded, playing support. Yeah. If I can, I'd like to quote you from 2014, because you said to Boyuan Gao at Inkblot, I want to be great by helping other people. You didn't want to work for someone unless they're helping out the community that they're situated in. Giving away turkeys was was what you said. And my question to you is, can it be Keisha time? Like, what do you dream about achieving not only for your neighborhood but for yourself? Oh. When, you were hi- when you were highlighted on Current as a black talent in public media, most of the other entrants were nominated once, maybe twice. You were nominated 32 times. You've been so important to people. Sophia Quintero dubbed you a radio doula. You dubbed yourself a podcast midwife. But what do you want for your creative output? Not, 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 not just what you do for others, but what you do for others through yourself. Mm. Oh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking on this because this is something that my therapist said to me this morning, he was like, what about you, though? What is a David project? Yeah. So in a way, I'm kind of cheating because I'm deflecting mm-hmm. by asking that mm-hmm. question at you. <laughs> um, okay. 
Wow, that's hard for me to answer because I just see stuff through the lens. Of I know other it. People. I know it will be. I know it is. You know, like I'm. I'm a. I look for voids. I want to fill them. I want to show people how to fill them. And I don't like. I don't think about myself, but I think about myself because, like, I want. I I want to see myself through the lens of other people. So, like, am I succeeding by helping other people succeed? is you know my thing but then also I do know that I get frustrated at times and and when you are a community minded person um it's not a pretty thing to let people know um that you're frustrated and you're tired and you don't want to do this anymore maybe or or whatever like you don't have the grace like as, after a while people get to know you for a thing and then they have less grace for you being human. And I do want things that are associated with material success. Um, but I've been so, it's it's almost like that's such a part of my identity. I don't really even know what those things are. Um, but I do know that I want to be someone that is respected greatly by all members of the audio radio, commu- audio radio podcast community. Um, I want to, you know, like, I mean, this is gonna sound so stupid, but I want a blue check on Twitter. You know, like I want, yeah, <laughs> like I, I understand that. I understand that impulse. Things that are not, um, you know, that are not associated with uh being the, you know, that's like having a blue check. That's like sellout stuff for some people, you know. But I want a blue check, man, because blue checks get checks. Like I want, <laughs> I want to not, you know, like I wanna, I wanna make money off the art that we make. But also, I'm not going to wait for money. That's how Weeksville, we didn't wait for money. We got a small grant. That's fine. Some people would have said, you know what? That's not enough. And we scaled it down so that we can make the thing. Com- the comment was fully volunteer-led. But at some point, I want somebody to say, TK, I want you to make the next part of Weeksville. And here's $30,000. Go go crazy. You know, like I want someone to see the work and tell me, go crazy. And here's a bag of money. Like, that's what I want. I want a bag of money. <laughs> <laughs> to do the stuff that I'm already doing for free. There it is. Um, so I heard the other day that you're saving Homecoming. You haven't watched it. You're saving it for a really crappy day, like a deeply self-affirming self-care day. Uh, and I'm very much out of my depth here. But I think you're going to find it very healing, right? Like, I'm a white guy. I didn't go to an HBCU. I I cried. Like, it wasn't even for oh, me. wow. And I cried. Nobody deserves a homecoming with like full honors more than Beyonce. It was incredible. Uh, Beyonce is great. Like, and just just in terms of who she is as like a woman and the types of women that she likes to um, represent for, and also like showcase as her dancers or or whatever part of her thing always in- includes black women. And that that's all for me, that's all you need. So I'm saving homecoming for a day when I either just have like it's all about me and w- crappy day or not, like it's just my day and I want to spend it with Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. I think you'll also like the behind the scenes stuff because she's such an interesting leader. She is. Like she's so exacting, but she's not a monster. Yeah. Which I find to be such a delicate balance to walk. Yeah, I think the other time I've seen that and, you know, like it's, I don't know, because of the news and stuff, it's very probably taboo to talk about Michael Jackson. But I saw, I, I saw that exhibited in the Michael Jackson This Is It documentary. Um, Which I haven't seen. 
it was it was just like one of those behind the scenes like if netflix was it, 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 if netflix existed back when that movie came out it would be like that like a homecoming right and there was something he said like somebody was not doing the the dance right or they were not they were playing the song off key um and he had to correct them and you know you picture michael jackson like correcting someone and does he even get mad at people and and then he kind of was like okay he tensed up for like half a second and then he just was like you know let me correct you and then he like made sure to say with the love with the love and i never forgot that right like let, let me like let me I got to be a boss right now. I have to lead by example. I have to look, we have to get this right. But also I respect you. And with the love, please give me the best. Give me the best that you have to offer. And that's kind of like when I work with people like with the love, like I want the best that you have to offer. Right. Like I just remember being in the studio um, for us recording Weeksville and, you know, it's hard to get people in a room together. Then, you know, it's late nights and people get cheeky and and you as the director or the person making the thing gets frustrated. People are joking around. And like I had to have with the love moments with the cast sometimes. Right. Like, hey, we got to do this. We got to make it good because the ancestors, you know, so. So let's do this. Yeah. Like with the love. So like it reminded me of that. And I imagine Beyonce is a similar type of leader, sure. right? With with the love. Like, listen, <laughs> we're going to get these dance steps right. <laughs> yeah, it was. I don't want to say too much, but it was all about transmitting the experience of the concert to the concert film. Yeah. Nice. And making sure that that experience felt authentic for the home viewer as well. Yeah. And that was really cool. It it was it, it's always really interesting to see a master at work. Yeah. Right. Like someone for whom the, the command and mastery of the art form is complete. You got to care about like every facet of the thing that you're making. And I just wanted to shout out the writers of Weeksville. The writers were extremely important in the Weeksville project because like we literally just said like these are our ideas and can you write them in a way that makes sense right like we had all these dreams and somebody had to distill the dream right yeah and we we even like so like the first story was written by Kinsey James um who at the time was going by J Michael Kinsey and he had written other you know, Sage shows, he's an actor and a dancer. So he got it and he's very black oriented in terms of the types of projects that he was doing. And he understood the history. And we met at a Kwanzaa party, for goodness sake. Uh -huh. um, like, so like, I felt like it was written for him, like he had to write it. And then we had a snafu with uh, a writer and the second story couldn't be written. And we were like up against the wall. So that story is the one that myself, Conscious, and Dr. Aisha Terman wrote. And we literally just went to her house with snacks and didn't leave until something was in Google Docs. So we were just three of us in a circle. Okay, what would he say now? Mm -hmm. And what would they, she say next? But, like, she's this type of person. Would she take that from him? Like, we literally were telling the story because we don't, this is not what we do. So we had to tell ourselves the story before we turned it into a script. So I just like like the process was 
a super important part of making this happen. And then story three was written by Nicole Perkins, who was um, the co-host or is the co-host uh, of Thirst Aid Kit um, alongside Bim Adewunmi. And she wrote a book called, a uh, poetry book called Lilith But Dark. And um, I saw her read from it. And I heard her say things about the South, where she's from. And I heard her talk about her womanhood, and I was like, she's going to write story three. She's going to write the story about the young woman who's striking out on her own. This is her story. So we met with her, and we told her what we were thinking and said, this is what we're thinking. Do what you want with it, and whatever you give back, I trust you. So, like, that's how story three got written um, in story two and story one. So like we gave them a lot of, we gave our writers a lot of leeway. Uh, they named the characters. We didn't name them. So I don't know. It was just an interesting journey, the Weeksville Project, bringing these people to life and also bringing this community to life. And I'd like to do more of it, but I think doing more of it does deserve it being more than a community uh, volunteer effort. I think it deserves some financing. It deserves some support. And it, it deserves it deserves people that want to hear this story being told. And when we were doing the live event, a lot of um a lot of other black communities from yesteryear reached out to us in Texas and in the West Coast. And they were like, yo, your story is our story. Thank you for doing this. And I and I just like my, my mind got blown. And and there was also like little things that would allow us to take it from Weeksville and go elsewhere. Like if we if we ever wanted to do one about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you know, like we left the door open. Right. So in story two, when Isaiah and Cumberland are going back and forth about the store, Isaiah says, you know, if I can't be half the man my father is in Weeksville, maybe I'll go to Oklahoma. Maybe I'll go to you know, such and such state. So we were dropping names of other black communities so that if we needed to leave Weeksville and do more with other people, other producers, that we could, you know, if if there's an opportunity to work with other producers in other communities and bring their community to life. And I don't know, like, that's what excites me, right? Like, there's an open door. We can stay in Weeksville. We could leave Weeksville because black people everywhere had been making these free communities where they were thriving and surviving. And that's the story of America, right? Yeah. The story of America is it's arriving, it's surviving, and it's thriving. Oh, shit. I got to write that down. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's the story um, behind Weeksville and just the cast. The cast was amazing. People like, like, like actor actors you know like i was floored each person that got the part literally was in real life the embodiment of who they are were in the story so that was amazing as well you know like strong these strong black women characters in the story were mirroring these strong black women characters that i know in real life and the men in the story as well so like i don't know just the cast was dope yo and um, if you listen to the podcast version, Cedric Wilson, who helped us, not helped, he did the sound. He did the sound. And uh, he also is the engineer on the um, Nod, the Nod podcast. Um, so, like, just him bringing that to life. Like, I had to step away from the project. Uh, at first, I could only hear 
every time we were in the studio and the giggling and everything that was wrong, quote unquote. And then I went back to the Weeksville Project uh, about a week ago, listened to it, and where he would place the, the, the music, there's the fireplace sounds, just these subtle things that we all talked about, but I couldn't hear them because I was still in production mode. You know, that like now as a listener, I'm fucking floored. I'm floored by it. And it was his first time doing audio fiction uh, sound. And um, we were just like, yo, it's cool because like it's our first time doing an original piece. So let's, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. That's so cool. Keisha, thank you so much for coming on RDR. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't talk too much, but also I really wanted to talk to you guys for such a long, long time. It's just been such a, a pleasure to be part of the community and then to to now, you know, meet you all in real life. It's so good. So yeah, good. it's been it was so good to see you at, at PodCon and finally put like a face. Same, same. Since our avatars are literally, we're literally avatars. Like <laughs> <laughs> we're just cartoons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks, Dave. Appreciate that, and appreciate all um, everybody that is working with y'all behind the scenes and pushing the um, movement forward. Yeah, for sure. Thank you again, TK. Now, if you want to hear Bonfire Radio's production of W.E.B. Du Bois' The Comet, they've got a podcast feed. Check out Bonfire Radio, that's B-O-N-D-F-I-R-E, on your podcasting service of choice. And remember, the Weeksville Heritage Center is raising money through the end of this month, June 2019. If you want to support their efforts, head to bit.ly slash saveweeksville. I have wonderful news to report, which is that Rashika Rao has joined our team as assistant submissions editor. We get tons of submissions to RDR, and it's too many for Ellie to do alone. And so, Rashika has joined us to assist. We're so glad you're part of the team, Rashika. And, hey, guess what? We have a website, RadioDramaRevival.com, where you can find a store! You can finally buy Radio Drama Revival merch! Head to RadioDramaRevival.com slash shop to check out our marvelous wares. My wonderful wife, Jillian, helped bring this thing to life at last, although Sean and Eli were instrumental, as always, with sage advice. Finally, you can put our gorgeous logo designed by David Bruno Brutman, my very best friend in all the world, on a shirt or a tank top or a mug or a tote bag or a hoodie. Whatever, man, I'm not picky. Do it to it. If you do get a piece of RDR merch, please, oh my God, please, for the love of everything, take a photo of yourself with it. I want to see it. And hey, we are still looking for a social media person. Do you want to work with us? Do you want to join Rashika? Get your face up on the About Us page? Yeah, you do! Send us an email at submissions at radiodramarevival.com with some of your most successful tweets and a few paragraphs on why you think you'd mesh well with the team and why you believe in the mission of Radio Drama Revival. The position pays, but not a lot. Everyone on RDR gets the same quarterly payment after we pay for infrastructure upkeep. We give priority to marginalized and underrepresented voices, and we want to be a place where you can challenge yourself and grow. If that sounds like fun, think of us. We have production meetings on Monday nights, Eastern Time, and they are always exceptionally silly and good. And now, your moment of will. Hey, listener. Last week... I brought you a poem by Mahogany L. Brown. This week, I'm going to bring you another in her series, Brooklyn Tongue. This one is Brooklyn Tongue 3. Like last week, it'll be linked in the show notes. There is a man that cleans the vestibule with the dirty mop. 
His patois is heavy like cocoa bread and milk. He really isn't the superintendent, just some man they paid to mop over the urine and spilled beer. He never speaks to us when we pass him. He never holds open the door, even if our arms are heavy with groceries and shopping bags. So we tuck our smiles into our pockets and limit our answers to curt head nods. We hold our breath until we make it behind our apartment door. There, we take a deep pull of potpourri, gingerbread, and everything that reminds us of home. We stand and wait for the assault of sticky candy and sour coffee to slide its odious body back into the building's main vein, where the man with the stiff mop waits for Brooklyn to go back to normal. And now it's time for the credits. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao are our submissions editors. I am currently our social media manager, but I'd like you to be. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>